I'm Candace Long with Lessons in the Latter Days, offering biblical commentary to make sense of the times that we're living in. Today's episode is called The Nephilim at Work Today. I want you to see that the Nephilim didn't just show up before the flood, never to be seen again. Rather, I want to explain how they have continued to further Satan's agenda throughout history and how they are manifesting today within the final kingdom that is forming now under the name of globalism or the New World Order. I'm not trying to frighten you. On the contrary, I want to inform you how they operate so you can grow in discernment. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned us about false prophets who would come in greater frequency in the latter days, looking like sheep on the outside, but inwardly they are really ravenous wolves, meaning they're out to tear us apart. He said you will know them by their fruits. Now what does that mean? Fruits, as we all know, are an outgrowth of the nature and genetic DNA of what's inside. So an apple is the fruit of a tree that was created by God to be an apple tree. Fruits are supposed to be healthy and nurturing. But Jesus is giving us an important clue, namely that what you see on the outside has to match what is genuinely inside the person. If it doesn't match and there is a discrepancy, then he's saying, look out. Stay away from these type of people because they will destroy you. In about 2012, I began to see this manifestation up close. There were friends that I had known for a long time, but slowly I began to notice that whenever I was around them, I felt uneasy. I couldn't put my finger on it, but something just didn't feel right. They looked the same on the outside, but something somehow shifted inside of them. I I don't know if you've had this experience or not, but it was very, very disturbing. So disturbing, in fact, that I spent months and into years researching this phenomenon to see if it were biblical. And if so, what are we instructed to do about it? Paul's first letter to Timothy was especially insightful. It concerns the activity of seducing and deceptive spirits that will be rampant in the latter days. When I began writing and teaching about this phenomenon, I cannot tell you how many people reached out and said, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I had no idea what was going on. If you have encountered this experience, first of all, let me assure you that it is a real phenomenon that will grow the closer that we come to the day of the Lord. If you want more information about it, I refer you to a monograph that I wrote about this topic. I ended up losing close friends through what I believe now to be a Nephilim strategy targeting committed followers of Jesus. You can find this monograph in my online store at CandiceLong.com. It's called How to Spot the Decoy in your midst. Through this strategy, these spirits are infiltrating legislative meetings, 
city councils, school boards, corporate boardrooms, and churches. They are everywhere. And the monograph will help you learn to spot decoys when you run into them and how to deal with them. Equally as important, we need to know how to protect ourselves so that we don't become decoys. A few years ago, I was listening to an audio series from Minister Miriam Hellman based on her book, God and the Gods, concerning the Nephilim. Something she said startled me. She mentioned a friend of hers who was the daughter of Eliezer ben Yehuda, a devout Jew of the late 19th century who is considered the father of modern Hebrew. Ben Yehuda was a gifted lexicographer, meaning he wrote dictionaries, and God used him to restore the Hebrew language to the Jewish people. What was interesting about Hellman's story is something Ben Yehuda told his daughter over the years. He said, before Messiah comes, the biggest subject on people's minds and hearts will be the Nephilim. In fact, these were his final words on his deathbed. So what I'm doing today is giving you some historical and biblical context as to how pervasive the Nephilim's influence is to be in the latter days, and it's not good. We must learn to recognize the signs as events are unfolding and identify the spirit that is working through those signs. In the last episode, we discussed the picture of the final worldly kingdom seen in King Nebuchadnezzar's vision that we read about in Daniel 2. It is a mixture of iron and clay. Now, dreams are a fascinating way that God speaks because he gives layers of meaning in a single picture. For instance, why would God show the king these particular elements, iron and clay? What does he mean by that? Well, for one thing, these two elements don't go together. They are not capable of mixing. But there's something else. One element is natural and earthbound, clay, and the other came from another world, iron. Many scientists say that iron was made inside supergiant stars that existed before the sun was formed and blasted into space during a nuclear fusion millions of years ago and today makes up a large portion of the Earth's surface. So this picture of toes made of iron and clay now says something very significant. It says in the book of Daniel that in this final kingdom before Messiah comes, we will not be dealing with normal toes. Now remember, we're told by the angel Gabriel that the ten toes represent ten kingdoms that the world will be geographically divided into and controlled by the top leadership of the new world order. Every toe representing every kingdom will be a divided mixture. One part of the DNA will be from the earth, enmeshed with something that came from an ancient pre-existing world that is not human. This would corroborate the biblical theory that I spoke about in the original Return of the Nephilim episode, that a great war in the heavens took place between the first two verses in the book of Genesis. Let's read them. Verse 1. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. That sounds wonderful. But then verse 2 reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Something horrible happened in between. Now, many scholars believe that this was the time when the watcher angels rebelled against God and refused to serve mankind. Instead, they decided to create their own race of mixed DNA called Nephilim, half angels and half human. And it is this race of people that is growing into a global army that will war against Messiah in the Battle of Armageddon. This intermarrying of mixed angelic and human DNA is exactly as it was in the days of Noah. And as you recall, Jesus said it would be this way again before he comes to set up his kingdom in the day of the Lord. Now, the fruit of that mixed DNA is not an apple. I believe the fruit is a compulsion, an obsession to inject an otherworldly view against the established order that God set up in the earth. We see this conflict of worldviews everywhere, from an insignificant town hall meeting to the halls of Congress. The original Nephilim were giants and didn't blend in with society, but this next generation produced demigods that look more like us. They were not as tall, so they didn't stand out as much, but they still had that warlike spirit intent on controlling the world and obliterating every biblical foundation. Now, in the original Return of the Nephilim episode, I mentioned Alexander the Great, who at age 20 established the Greek Empire in the 4th century BC, which was the largest empire the ancient world had ever seen. Now, Alexander shared several key attributes with Jesus. He referred to himself as Son of God. He died at age 33, like Jesus. But most important, Alexander's mother conceived him by supernatural means. She was impregnated by the god Zeus in a spiritual mystery orgy. Now, unless you think that this is too out there, I want you to listen to the words of the prophet Daniel as he tells us that Alexander would be the first in a line of kings who would produce the Antichrist. Now, this passage comes from Daniel 8. Gabriel said, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram which you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the he-goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, and at the latter end of their rule, when the transgressors have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Daniel is giving us here the genealogy of the Antichrist. Let's look at the phrase, what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. The word indignation in Hebrew means to be enraged, as if frothing from the mouth. 
This refers to God's fury as sin and rebellion against him and his ways increase toward the time of the end. Now, speaking to our current situation, things are going to get worse and worse on earth. The Nephilim agenda will become dominant and mainstream, coming against any biblically held beliefs. It will become an increasing oppressive environment for believers. A second observation concerns the war between a ram with two horns, representing the kings of Media and Persia, and a he-goat with a great horn between his eyes. Gabriel tells us that the he-goat is the king of Greece, Alexander the Great. Interestingly, the word he-goat is used three times in this passage, using three different Hebrew words. This is significant. The first time, the word is actually she-goat, referring to its nature of being stout, hardened, and having a prevailing nature. Now, in plain talk, that's being in-your-face, bossy, and controlling. The next time the word he-goat is used, the word refers to a male goat as prancing about proudly, magnifying himself. In this scripture, we find another Hebrew word translated as a rough or shaggy he-goat, which means devil or satyr. Now remember, Alexander was a demigod. He was half human, half Nephilim, with Zeus as his biological father. So he had spiritual, royal, angelic blood. And that bloodline is the most vital part of a demigod's nature. Now, a satyr in Greek mythology is half man and half goat. They were companions to Pan, a fertility god, and Dionysus, the god of wine and ecstasy. So this description by Gabriel to Daniel is significant for the language that he uses refers to a man whose sexual desire is off the charts. If you were to look at the word satyr metaphorically, it would be someone who takes on the goat-like nature of one who is crazed for sexual pleasure, who enjoys dancing and prancing about, often turning the services into orgies. But let me show you how this is manifesting today. Just recently, I was rereading the contemporary classic by Dr. John Coleman on the formation and development of the New World Order. The book's title, The Committee of 300, pulls back the curtain to reveal the shadow group that pulls the strings and masterminds everything that goes on in the world. Coleman describes the Committee of 300 as, quote, the most brilliant intellectuals ever assembled to form a completely totalitarian, controlled society, having drawn most of its ideas from ISIS, Osiris, and Dionysus, unquote. Now, the first two, Isis and Osiris, were powerful Egyptian gods, sister and brother, who married each other to retain their satanic bloodline and whose worship spread throughout the Greco-Roman world. Isis was a goddess of magic, and the people sought out her occult powers. Dionysus was the Greek god of wine and ecstasy. Now, according to Greek mythology, Dionysus was the son of Zeus, 
which makes him related by bloodline to Alexander the Great. What I want to show you is the influence of the Nephilim all the way from ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome to the upper echelon of those now forming the New World Order. Listen to just a few of the goals that Dr. Coleman lists in his book that the Committee of 300 are working to implement through the final kingdom. Number one, marriage will be outlawed. Children will be wards of the state, and free sex will be mandatory. Number two, self-abortion will be taught. And number three, pornography will be promoted, including homosexuality and lesbianism and recreational drugs permitted. So what happened after Alexander died? Daniel writes that the great horn breaks off and four others take its place. His kingdom was divided among his four generals, Seleucus, Ptolemy, Cassander, and Antigonus. Now, two of them will play a significant part in the latter days and are discussed in detail in Daniel 11. Those two are the king of the north, Seleucus, who took the land of Syria, and the king of the south, Ptolemy, who took Egypt. These two fought each other constantly for control, and as we get closer to the very end of days, we should expect this same battle replayed between descendants of these two kingdoms. Daniel writes, And at the latter end of their rule, when the transgressors have reached their full measure, a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Now, this is talking about the Antichrist here. Let me explain. Our Jewish forefathers and Hebrew scholars teach that the, quote, king of bold countenance who understands riddles refers to the false Messiah. The passage tells us that this Nephilim bloodline comes through the Greek Empire from Alexander and his successors will produce this man of sin. The phrase says, when the transgressors have reached their full measure. Now, this refers to the full measure or number of bloodline descendants who have carried the Nephilim seed throughout history into today, mounting up wickedness in the earth, especially against Israel. This explains how Satan is able to build up his army to fight Messiah in the final battle. Remember, when Satan fell from heaven, he took one-third of the angels with him. Since then, he had a lot of catching up to do to build a larger army. And the primary way he is doing this is by mixing DNA from Nephilim, or demigods, to the human race and encouraging inordinate lust between those beings to breed with each other and multiply and to breed with humans on earth. Now, parents should be especially cautious right now and pay attention to those who may be lusting after your children. Now, such intermarriages also show why the world is getting increasingly more wicked each year. The true source of a person's DNA will always manifest behaviorally according to the nature of that DNA. 
those tainted by Satan's seed will always manifest in perversion, hatred for anyone who pursues godliness, lust for dominance and control, greed and defiance against authority. Those with this genetic seed are multiplying rapidly right now and they're manifesting their true nature. The Lord says you will know them by their fruits. The concept of a pure bloodline is very important to God. For his people to mingle their seed with other nations was forbidden. Equally committed to pure lineage, though, is the Illuminati, whose goal was and is to become more like the evil one. Members of the Illuminati maintained their bloodline by intermarrying with other Illuminati families in order to strengthen their power base. The more dedicated a family is to Satan, through unspeakable acts such as kidnapping children for child sacrifices and pedophilia, the more wealth and power that family is granted. Now, when we see a rise in these horrible behaviors, the Nephilim are at work. We are not dealing with flesh and blood. I found an interesting section in Miriam Hellman's book, God and the Gods, concerning what happened to the Nephilim bloodline after the Roman Empire. Because we see in the book of Daniel that the Antichrist is going to come through the Seleucid dynasty that was based in Syria. Hellman wrote that after Rome conquered the Middle East, many of the rulers of the Seleucid Empire moved their residency from Syria to Rome, where they intermarried with Roman aristocrats. Thus, their genetic bloodline is likely still present today in European royalty and other leaders. Now, to bring this up to date with the formation of the New World Order, Dr. Coleman presents an extensive organizational chart composed of a group of interlocking international companies, which includes every industry, banking, entertainment, technology, insurance, real estate, media, satellite communications, space weaponry. The Committee of 300 is the executive arm that oversees all operations and reports to the inner circle called the Olympians, whose power base is London. Let me offer a glimpse into how widespread this ungodly influence is all over the globe. According to Messianic Rabbi Michael Washer in his book, When All the Pictures Are Restored, most of the world's nations base their societal structure on a Greco-Roman system. It's called Hellenism and is known as the Way of the Greek. Now, just as it was during the Roman Empire, Hellenism will be the dominant worldview in the New World Order. Its message is focused on these five elements. Number one, unity between all peoples. Number two, homosexuality as a virtue. Number three, physical perfection as the ideal. Number four, idolatry, and number five, political correctness. In closing, I want to remind you that if we belong to Jesus, we are not to be afraid, no matter how oppressive the culture becomes. The Lord knows who are His. 
We are to walk out each day as lights in the world with the certainty that he will never leave us or forsake us. Now, if you don't know whether or not you belong to Jesus, you can do what I did back in 1969. I prayed a very simple prayer, and I said, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, then I ask you to come into my life and help me get to know you. The Lord heard my childlike prayer. He took me from the kingdom of darkness and began teaching me 52 years ago about him and his kingdom, which is where we're headed now. If you'd like to refer this program to others, you'll find it under my podcasts on my website at CandiceLong.com. I want to thank you for listening. Join me again next time for Lessons in the Latter Days.